Good morning, church. I just dropped my cup on the floor. You know, in the, the days of the Reformers and the Catholic Church, um, not everyone was allowed to have the bread and the cup out of fear that some ham-fisted peasant would drop the, the body and blood of Christ on the floor, which is what I've just done. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 41. Uh, growing up in our house, there was a, a tablet that was uh, hanging on the wall in our house. And written on Hebrew, in Hebrew were the words, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It had been made by my father uh, out of clay. He had framed it and set it on the wall to be a, a motto for our family. Not that he um, made us serve the Lord. Um, not that we were coerced into serving the Lord, but the message was that some things cannot be compromised about, um, some things you can't sit on the fence about. In Joshua 24 verse 15, where the words are from, we see that Joshua, they've, they've, the people of Israel have come into the land of Canaan, they've conquered the, the land, and the land is to be divided amongst the people of Israel, and so before sending them to their respective parts of the land, Joshua sees a danger. He knows that the people haven't been completely conquered. There are still Canaanites living in the land. And so Israelites and Canaanites are going to live together. And he knew the danger there was that the gods of the nations might tempt and sway the people of God. And so he's giving a, a passioned cry to the people. Reject false gods. Serve Yahweh. I can speak for my family, he says. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That banner that my dad created over our house was a reminder of what our family stood for in, in difficult times in ministry as exiles living in this world. It was a banner of our, our heads to remind us of the choice that we had made. The message to us was don't do both. If you're going to serve yourself, if your primary goal in life is going to be your own ambition, uh, your own desires, your own purpose. If you're going to be mastered by none but yourself, go and do that. But don't do both. As for me, we have decided to serve the Lord. And, and that's what we did. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the role my father played in my life. And as a, a pastor, that definitely is my desire in ministry, that you would be confronted with that same choice. That you wouldn't be here week in and week out, sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Do one or the other. Serve Him wholeheartedly or live for yourself. We're going through an Advent series in the book of Isaiah. And each week there's an invitation in this book to us. An invitation leading up to Christmas. And I believe with all my heart that, that these words, that this book is relevant for us now. Coming through a, a really difficult year, a year of struggle. In the first week we were in Isaiah chapter 6. And the invitation was to behold the king. Put your eyes upon him. Look at him and see him. In week two, we were in Isaiah 11. And the invitation was to put your hope in this king for perfect peace and perfect justice. This week, we're going to be in Isaiah 41 and the first part of 42. And the invitation is to choose. 
Choose between this king and what is false, between his power, his provision and salvation, and that which promises much and delivers nothing. What will it be, God or idols? That's where we're going today in Isaiah 41 and 42. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to gather around your word. I pray for grace as you help me to open this pretty vast passage, Lord. I pray um, for clarity of mind as we try to distill its message. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and confront us with a choice. Help us to see into our own lives and see what needs to change there. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC, and there are two sections to the book. In Isaiah chapter 1 to 39, it's Isaiah looking forward to an exile that is going to happen, to an exile to come, and he's calling the people to turn away from their false religion and to trust in the Lord. In Isaiah 40 to 66, it's almost as if Isaiah has been transported a couple centuries into the future because the perspective changes. From his writing, it's as if the exile has already happened. And so it's still relevant for the people in Isaiah's day, but it was written as well to a people who would be in exile, waiting and wondering, are we abandoned by God? Where is God in the middle of our mess? What has happened? Is everything out of control? And the book of Isaiah is proof that nothing could be further from the truth. God is purposefully at work in the events of history And in particular, in this section, chapter 40 to 42, the proof is there that God is the Lord over history, that history is in His hands. He is trustworthy, and He alone can save. And so He's going to put the idols, the false gods of the nations, on trial in this passage, and none will be able to stand. And the call to them and to us today is the same. Put away your idols and trust in the Lord. It's a big section that we're going to be in today. Usually I like to read the passage beforehand. I timed it and it would take about six minutes to do that. So I ask with your permission that we let the passage unfold as we go. That's all right. I'll just give you the headings and we'll jump into the text. The first heading is this. From Isaiah 41 verse 1 to 7 and verse 21 to 29. The gods that you have to carry. The gods you have to carry. And then in 41 verses 8 to 20, the God who carries you. And then finally we'll close with a quick glimpse at the servant of the Lord. The first of four servant songs, Isaiah 42 verse 1 to 9, Jesus, the alternative to idols. Number one, the guards you have to carry. There's this theme in the book of Isaiah, an invitation not just to the people of God, but actually an invitation to the nations, to the Gentiles, come to the mountain of the Lord. There's an invitation to come and behold. And yet there's something that's standing in their way, something that must be dealt with, a false worship, a false view of God. They've put their trust, the nations, in that which cannot save. And God is not enthroned upon their praises as the Lord of history. And so God must break the spell of false worship for people to be able to come. And so in verse 1, he says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. The coastlands represent the nations. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. 
the language employed here is very similar to the language in Job. Job chapter 38 verse 3. If you remember, um, Job has brought his complaint against the Lord. Um, why is this happening in my life? I thought I've lived a good life. I thought I've done what is right. Why is this happening? And God speaks to Job and he says, Dress for action like a man. I will question and you will answer. It's a similar language in this passage. He's saying to the nations, let's settle this once and for all. Let's have a debate. Who is God? Verse 2 and 3. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. We believe this is a reference to, to Cyrus. This is Isaiah looking 200 years forward to the reign of Cyrus. He would be the one to conquer Babylon and actually end the exile of God's people. For a people wondering, where is God? Is he alive? Does he care? Where is his power? God is saying here in chapter 41, I am the one who stirs up kings. Every event is in my hands. Verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. History is following a divinely ordered schedule. God says, I am the I am, I am He, I am the first, and I am the first cause. I am involved in every nanosecond in, of history. And at the end, with the last who will be there, I will be there as well. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we say, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This is the picture Isaiah is giving. He is Lord over history. He rules it from beginning to end. He wasn't absent during the exile. And we know He is not absent today, even in this year. Now, rather than giving their hearts to the one in whose hands is the heart of kings, the nations would choose their own gods, their idols. They stood on shaky ground, and so when kings moved, their hearts turned to terror. And when their hearts turned to terror, they turned to their idols to save. I think if you'll remember a while back, I spoke about a show that I, I enjoy watching with my son. Anybody remember? <laughs> you were at the first service. <laughs> Forged in Fire is a show, a knife-making competition, where four um, bladesmiths come together to craft knives. Um, and in like six hours, they make these beautiful pieces with handles completed. And yet, those knives are then put through tests that knives were not meant to... Things that knives were not made for. Right? Knives are for cutting, not for bashing against bricks and blocks of ice and um, motorcycle handlebars. And so as these knives are tested, these, these men are, are wincing with every strike because on the line is $10,000 and their reputation as forged in fire champion. It's what they're all striving for. And what so often happens, um, it, it goes into slow motion as they're bashing this knife against something and, and you see the knife break and metal clangs on the floor and they call it catastrophic failure and so Noah we'd see him playing in the garden but he plays with sticks 
We see him just bashing sticks against trees and, and against rocks. Um, and he would come in and say, Dad, we, we were all involved in the competition. He'd say, Dad, your, your knife suffered a, a catastrophic failure. And this picture in Forge and Fire, it's just a tiny picture of um, their idolatry, the idolatry of the nations, the, the work that they put. In, it was the work of their own hands into something that they would hope would save them. In the face of terrifying world events, they placed hopes in the work of their own hands. And God now is going to hold up a m- mirror to the foolishness of this idolatry. In Isaiah 40, he asks this question. He says, How will you compare God to an idol, one you have to craft yourself? How can you compare God to something you make with your own hands? In 41 verse 5 to 7, then he says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. Remember, Cyrus is approaching. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Isaiah is mocking them. He's saying, your idols are are birthed in your fear, in your quivering at what's happening in the world. You turn to one another, and you strengthen one another, and you put your hand on the, the idol maker and say, steady hands now, our salvation is in your hands. And when the idol is crafted, what do they do? With nails, they they nail it to the table so that idol won't topple over, saying you have to prop up your own God. In chapter 44, he goes on with the mockery, and he says it's an amazing thing. The craftsman walks into the forest and chops down a tree, and half this tree he uses to make fire, and with that fire he can eat and finds warmth, and then with the other half of that tree he makes a god. And cries out, deliver me. Isaiah is saying, it's amazing. How do you know which end of the tree is firewood and which end is God? And so the debate in verse 1 turns to trial in verse 21. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Again, you need to hear Isaiah's words dripping with sarcasm, saying, bring your gods into my courtroom, carry them in. If you have to carry your own God into the courtroom of God, then you are in trouble. God makes a claim then in verse 25 to 28, He goes on to say, I don't just predict or declare what's going to come, the events of history. I'm the one who stirs up kings. Cyrus is my servant. Remember, this is Isaiah speaking 200 years before these events even took place. And to the false gods, Isaiah and God is saying, predict something, predict anything, so that we know that you're even there. Do something, do good, do harm, so that you can prove you're not just a a lifeless piece of wood. All right, this is Elijah on Mount Carmel all over again. You remember that that event? The people of God, uh, earlier on, their hearts had turned away from God to Baal. And so Elijah challenges the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He says, you build your, your altar, 
I'll build my altar. You get your sacrifice ready, I'll get mine ready. The one thing you cannot do is provide the fire. Cry out to your God to provide that fire. And so the, the prophets of Baal are, are crying out and pleading and cutting themselves and um, desperate for their, their God to show up. And Isaiah, uh, Elijah mocks them and says, you remember, where is your God? Is he relieving himself? Right, this is the tone here in Isaiah 41. Your gods can't predict the flow of events, let alone control them. And this is who you put your hope for the future in? This is who you trust in? And so the judgment is cast against idols and against idolatry. In verse 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. In verse 24, Behold, you are nothing, speaking to these idols, these gods, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Do we laugh at this picture? Nailing these gods to the table that they won't fall over. Smugly from our position. Yes, what, how humorous it is, this primitive faith. The truth is that we are, are no different today. Their idols were birthed out of fear, a desperate reaction to, the, to events that were just out of their control. Ray Orton comments, he said, they long for stability amid the buffetings of life, but their blindness leaves them with no recourse but to manufacture their own gods to help them. And we smugly laugh at this picture, and yet we do the exact same thing. We build our own idols. We prop up our own gods and look to created things to give us identity, security, safety, assurance for the future. Martin Luther, in his catechism on the first commandment, said this. He asked this question, what is it to have a God? And he gives this answer. A God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him with our whole heart. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. Rather than make God our mighty fortress, our bulwark never failing, we turn to other things, don't we? Retirement plans, possessions, other people. We turn to our, ourself, ourselves, our own strength, status-giving skills, our own intelligence, rather than find our security and our identity in God, in His unshakable love, we compromise ourselves by wrapping up our significance in created things, in the approval of peers, or in our own ability to perform. We look to created things to save us. We have our own idea, our own version of what hell must be. And we look to created things to protect us from that hell. I've seen so many young people compromise their faith by entering into a, a relationship that God cannot bless because they are so afraid of being alone. An idol is not inherently, in its nature, a bad thing. They're, they're things that God has created for our blessing. Work, hobbies, family, money. But an idol is, as, as one theologian said, a, a good thing that has become a God thing. Something elevated to the place of highest prominence in our hearts to rival God Himself. 
Think for a minute with me. What is the worst thing today that could possibly happen to you? What's the, the worst thing that could happen to you? What do you fear to lose most? What is the thing that you could not live without? Do you fear most, perhaps, that you would catch COVID and, and pass away? Or maybe that a loved one would die? Do you fear that you would lose your job and have to sell your house? Or that you would fail in something and lose the respect and the approval of your peers? The temptation that often comes to compromise what we believe and compromise our faith because we fear losing something, that might be a, a sign to you where your idols are, where they lie. And for all the hope that we place in these things, in money and in jobs, in our health and in relationships, for all the security that we seek in them, none of those things can promise us a future. Every one of them is vulnerable to disillusion, to falling away. And when all of your joy and all of your hope is in a gift rather than the giver of those gifts, you face a great danger because in one moment, your whole life can come crashing down. It's not a wonder we're, we're terrified all the time. When the gods that you expect to save you are held up by you, tied to your strength, to your wisdom, your intelligence, your financial acumen, when they're tied to your beauty or to your goodness, there is only room in your life for fear. So rather than choose the gods that you must carry, number two, let's look to the God who carries us. Verses 8 to 20 of chapter 41 there's a word to Israel and a word to us that we have to make a better choice. God says, but you, Israel, my servant. He's held up a mirror so that we can see the, the ridiculousness of idolatry and that false trust. And now he's going to address our hearts in these verses, address in our hearts the propensity to rely on things which cannot save by, by showing himself as the greater choice. There's three pictures in these sections. Or in this section, the three pictures that would call our hearts away from fear to placing our, our hope and our future, hope for a future in Him, in His careful hands. So the first picture in verses 8 to 13, God is saying, I will do the carrying. And the second picture in verses 14 to 16, He says, I'll do the crafting. And the third picture in 17 to 20, I'll do the satisfying. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. What is it that gives you security for your future? Is it something that you can lose? Something that could be taken away in a moment? God is saying to these frightened exiles, I have chosen you. I've taken you. I've, I've called you. I have not cast you away. In every situation of life, the people of God can say, it doesn't matter what you're facing today, you can say the electing love of God has the firmest grip on my life. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our security. 
In verse 10, fear not, he says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. His command, the first command in this passage, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Literally, the language is do not let your eyes dart around anxiously. Look to me. And he gives five reasons here. He says, I am with you. I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. John Piper speaks about this verse quite regularly. He he shares his own story of going off to um, study in Germany and, and his dad giving him this verse, saying, cling to this verse. And he says that's exactly what he did in in life's stresses and anxieties, how he would just repeat this verse over and over and over and over again to the point where he says, as an old man, this is how the cog in my brain works. In autopilot, this is how my mind works. He comments, he says, I am your God over you. I am with you by your side. I will strengthen you from inside you. I will help you all around you from wherever the enemy comes. I will uphold you from underneath you. Therefore, do not fear. With you, by your side, inside, all around, underneath you, this is our God today. You have to carry your own idols. You have to prop them up. And God is reversing it and saying, I will uphold you. In verse 11, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. The picture here is is of somebody who's frightened for the battle, scared to go into battle, who lifts up their eyes and the enemy is not even there anymore. There's no one there to contend. In Exodus chapter 17, we see this word uphold again. Or we've seen it before. Israel is attacked by the people of Amalek. Do you remember that story? And Moses goes up onto a mountainside overlooking the battle. And he's got the staff of God in his hands. And he holds up that staff. And while he's holding it up, the people of Israel are winning the battle. And when he grows tired and his hands begin to droop, the battle turns and Israel begins to lose. And so he sits down on a rock and Aaron and her together hold up his hands for him. Until the the evening comes and Israel win the fight. That's the same picture here in Isaiah 41, 8 to 13. God fighting the battle for us. In verse 13 he says, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Saying, I have committed myself to you. I have not thrown you off. I'm committed to your cause. Why do you turn to the idols? Why do you fear? Paul would say to us, if God is for us, who can stand against? And what is there to fear when God fights for you? What do you fear today? The second picture in verses 14 to 16, for reason not to fear. He says, they want to craft their rescuers. I'll do the crafting. Look at this. He says, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. 
new and sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. We've all heard of that sort of laughable fairy tale of the princess who finds a frog and gives the the frog a big smack on the lips and that frog turns into Prince Charming. Um, It's a a funny fairy tale, laughable. It it does, however, bear resemblance to the real-life longing of many women, does it not? If only a kiss would transform this frog man into the prince of my dreams. The hope of the Bible for the church is actually a similar hope. It's a hope of God actually recreating us into something that we can't even imagine. That's His commitment and His promise. Now, if you know yourself and you know the church, if you've been part of a church for any length of time, you know it's a miracle that we accomplish anything at all. And yet that's the point. We are more than conquerors through Him and for His glory. We are, are, are just um, vessels, empty vessels. We are uh, jars of clay, fragile, but through our weakness we display His power. The scene in Isaiah is laughable. A worm, he says, made into a threshing sledge powerful enough to level mountains, not just crops. In chapter 40, verse 3 to 5, as I said, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah's point here, this picture is that, that things will be changed more and more and God will reveal His glory more and more. And here he's saying he will actually use the people of God to do it. Now what I'm not talking about here is the message of the world. The world is naive to the human condition. The message of the world is you are amazing. You can do whatever you want to do. Whatever you dream, you can do it. That's the biggest problem with my generation because we grew up being told that. All right? You're amazing. There's no limits. The Bible is more honest about the human condition You're a worm, Jacob, but but you serve a great God. Alec Martyr in his commentary says, Whatever barriers may confront the Lord's people, they are not to be measured in proportion to the people's inherent weakness, but in proportion to the Lord's promise to transform. He is making a world. He is making a people for himself, and that's our hope for the future. The security for the future is not in your strength not in your ability to create a world around you, but in His promise to transform, in His promise to use you, an empty vessel, for His glory. Third picture, those who need shade, those who are thirsty, God says, come and find your satisfaction in me. Look at verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and mountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. 
I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Who are the thirsty today? Who are the poor and needy? We are. We are. The very fact, as John Calvin points out, that our hearts are idol factories, he says. We churn out idols left, right, and center so easily. That is proof of our thirst. And God is calling us, saying, Have your thirst satisfied in me alone. The picture here in these verses is of a traveler wandering through the desert, a parched land, and and God recreating the landscape around him into an oasis unlike any ever seen before. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, this accusation is leveled against Israel. For this evil, Jeremiah says, of rejecting the fountain of living water and then going and digging out broken cisterns, wells that cannot even hold water, and looking to those wells to satisfy your thirst. The famous words of C.S. Lewis come to mind. He says of our condition, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God is making a promise in Isaiah 41, a promise that Jesus repeated in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Have you come to Christ for your thirst to be satisfied in him? This has been the experience of saints throughout the ages. Augustine tells of of his experience. He lived a life of of much licentiousness before he came to the Lord, and he tasted and saw that the Lord was good. He says this, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things you had made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath, and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Do you not marvel that the one that we rejected, the one who says in this passage, an abomination is he who chooses idols. Do you not marvel that this one in patience calls out louder than those idols? Do you not marvel that in forgiveness he actually competes? He reveals his glory and his splendor and his beauty. Do you not marvel that he would stoop like that? 
That instead of writing us off, the ones who rejected him for idols, he does not cast off, but calls out and pursues. The one who stirs the hearts of kings would leave the throne of heaven and come into our story. That's what Advent is about. Advent is about God displaying his glory through Jesus Christ in order to arrest our hearts away from their idols. After drawing attention to the futility of idols in verses 24 and 29, you see the word behold in both of those verses. Behold, they are empty. Behold, they are nothing. He says behold again in chapter 42 verse 1 where he says, Behold my servant. And in verses 1 to 9, we have the first of four servant songs in this section of Isaiah about Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do in closing is just have our eyes set upon Jesus as we approach the Lord's Supper. He is the alternative to idols and He is the invitation to the world today. In 42 verse 6 to 8, this is actually Yahweh speaking to His servant Speaking to the Lord, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. At Cyrus' coming, we see the nations trembling in fear. And in their fear, they turn to idols. At the greater servant's coming, at Jesus' coming, what happens? Those who sit in darkness are by His light drawn to the glory of God. And their hearts are arrested to Him. As Cyrus approaches in 41.25, it says, He shall trample on rulers as mortar as the potter treads clay. The greater servant, Jesus Christ, comes in another way. Look at verse 1 of 42. Behold my servant who I, I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Matthew quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. In the context there, we see the Pharisees are conspiring against the Lord in opposition to him. Um, fighting against him for popularity of the people and for power. Jesus doesn't enter that fray. He gets on with his ministry and preaching and humility, healing those who are hurting and changing their lives. He's in humble o- obedience to the Father. He pours out his life for the hurting. He's not interested in popularity struggles or power struggles with the Pharisees. He, he entrusts his ministry to the Lord. And Ray Ortland says this. He says he gave suffering people their lives back. And he didn't use his success with them to take advantage of them or promote himself. No destructive swagger. No brutal grasping. How different to the kings of men. A gentle servant brings forth justice to the nations. And look at verse 3 and find yourself in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The servant's step was gentle and careful. was loving and kind. 
Have you ever seen how crocodiles hold their young in their mouths? They have big, powerful jaws. They, they tear and rip. They bring down wildebeest. And yet they, the, the mothers carry their, their young in their mouth, safe and secure. This is Christ. He could have come like Cyrus. He could have come with a heavy step. He could have come to crush and destroy. He could have called 10,000 angels and not gone through the, the, the suffering of the cross. The one who calmed the storm with the word was silent as they spat upon him and pulled out his beard and put a crown of thorns on his head. Sam Albury says, think of all that he could break and you begin to see the wonder of what he won't break. Those who are weak and come to Christ, he will not toss aside. He will not cast you off today. There are none too bruised that he says of them, useless, worthless. There are none too faintly burning that he would snuff them out or or give up on them. Throughout the Gospels, we see this Jesus meeting with people, don't we? We see them experiencing him, him and, and tasting and knowing that they are better, that he is better than their idols. The woman at the well. She, he comes to the woman at the well and, and she's been written off by her, her own people and he says to her, what? Come to me. I am living water. Drink from me and you will never be thirsty again. A woman caught in adultery. She's about to be stoned. He says to her, where are your accusers? We are those to condemn, neither do I. Go and sin no more. There's a man whose son is demonized. He comes with half a confidence. Lord, if you can do something. And God, Jesus says to him, if you can, nothing is impossible for the one who has faith. And he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that's what Jesus does. To wounded disciples, we see restoration. To one who denied him three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Get up and feed my sheep. Thomas, it's, touch my hands and my sides. It's time to believe. How divided are our hearts? We are faintly burning wicks. We are bruised reeds. And our only hope is a king who is more gentle than our sins deserve, but who is more powerful than our hearts and who would draw us to himself. And so that is our prayer and our cry this morning. Gentle and mighty king, do not relent until I am completely yours. John Donne, the 16th century poet, knew the, the pull of sin. He said this, Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me and bend. You're forced to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. That is our cry this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would have you place your grip so firmly on our hearts that we would be drawn to you and not to another. We would be used for your glory, 
and your glory alone, not, not our own glory, not the praise of men do we seek, but your praise. And yet we know that our hearts are divided. We are so quick to churn out idols, to look to other things to save and give significance and rescue. Lord, help us not to fear what may be lost in this life. Help us to live in the fear of the Lord and to follow and serve you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.